the precious joy that's ours yet again this afternoon to have the opportunity to gather to worship God, to engage in prayer and in singing and the other aspects of worship, including a study of His Word. Truly what a monumental occurrence for each of us it is to set the week off on a great start and to consider the joy that's ours of edification one of another that we might be drawn closer into fellowship not only with each other but with our Heavenly Father. We have the opportunity tonight to continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel as our youngsters continue their consideration of that book for the Bible Bowl and its effort. We have been studying with them and have arrived tonight at chapters 17 and 18. Not too many more to go in this 24-chapter book. I'd invite your attention then tonight with me as we look at the end of Absalom's conspiracy. As we study that, we might do well to have some introductory thoughts, setting our mind on where we last picked up this scene of events last Lord's Day evening. In so doing, we came to see then that after David had arrived at the pinnacle and zenith of his leadership, things began to turn downhill for him. Prompted by the sins of chapter 11, the fact the sword would never depart from his house, and in fact how difficult and tumultuous things became when even Amnon was slain, his oldest son, his third oldest son, in fact tonight also shall meet his death. Tamar, even his daughter, was herself defiled by her own half-brother. All the while, Absalom, though, was not finished. Even though he was exiled for some three years from his father, he was, in fact, invited back by David, but still estranged from David. And in that state of affairs, he apparently brewed to the point of desiring to conspire against his own father. That was our lesson last Lord's Day evening, when in that degree of consideration, he in fact chased David from the throne, and in that degree of consideration, David feared for his own life and that of those that were his followers. While he himself was on the run, he still was concerned, in fact, about Absalom. With that scene of events closing, chapter 16, it was of note for us to appreciate the name of two counselors, one of which was Ahithophel, the other was Hushai. Tonight, they each will play a rather considered role in the events of these two chapters. Beginning in chapter 17 tonight, we have opportunity to see, in fact, how the consideration continues, for the division into chapters was, of course, done by mankind. It picks up seamlessly from the end of chapter number 16. Notice as we start chapter 17 what we're able to appreciate. Absalom had received some counsel from Ahithophel as chapter 16 ended. And that counsel on that occasion took the form to go in into David's concubines and in thus to illustrate to Israel that he had usurped the throne and that he was in fact in power. Chapter 17 begins with another element of advice that Ahithophel gave to Absalom. And that advice took this form. Gather 12,000 men of the troops, pursue after David, who by this point is weak and weary-handed, and in so doing you will overtake him, and as such you shall be able to destroy and take his life, to kill your own father, but to bring all of those that are his servants back to being members of the people or the tribe of Israel. That counsel at first seemed very good and wise to Absalom. However, he also desired to hear what Hushai had to say. He invited Hushai and asked him, What is your counsel? Hushai very pointedly said, At this time, Ahithophel's counsel is not good. 
In fact, he affirmed this. Your father David is a mighty and valiant warrior, and as such, a mere group of 12,000 men will not be successful to overcome him. Rather, this is what you should do. Gather all of Israel together from Dan to Beersheba. Chase after David, kill him, and all of those that follow him. And in so doing, you will then end the whole matter of any degree of following David, and you will, of course, claim the ultimate kingship of Israel. The two degrees of counsel were rather different. Upon hearing Hushai's counsel, Absalom and all of Israel was overwhelmed with excitement. This counsel is good, better than Ahithophel's. Let us follow Hushai's counsel. And so it was that information to that degree was in fact sent forth. But an interesting word first must be noted. Hushai, of course, as we remember, was in fact David's spokesman in as much as he was still loyal to David. He was in fact an infiltrator into Absalom's camp. He needed to send word and information to David as to what the decision and what the council was. He did so in the following way and by the following mechanism. Hushai, of course, told to the priests, Abiathar and Zadok, what the council was. They, in turn, told a young maid, who in turn told Jonathan and Ahimaaz, the sons of the priests. And it was their job to get news, of course, to David. That, of course, came about by an interesting mechanism at one point. One of Absalom's, or Absalom became aware that these two were spies, or became aware that they were knowledgeable of the plan. In fact, a young lad had seen these two. As the lad shared that news with Absalom, he sent messengers and servants to find them. As they ran on their way, they came to Baruhim and hid in a well. A lady spread a covering over it and poured grain on top of it, completely covering and concealing them. When Absalom's servants came, in fact, to discuss and to ask about the matter, they did not find the two boys hidden in that well. After Absalom's servants went on their way, the boys came up from the well and proceeded to tell David, cross the Jordan River and there find safety for... We remember that Absalom's counsel... That which he had received from Hushai is that all of Israel will chase and find you. In fact, as that brings us to that point in the 17th chapter, it might be interesting for us to appreciate that Ahithophel's counsel is called good in verse 14, but that God defeated it. The man on the throne recognized as David was still the one whom God desired to lead the people, not his son Absalom. God defeated that council of Ahithophel, for quite likely it would have been successful. We shall find David knew of Hushai's council and was able to still be the one to overcome and the one to be victorious. Some of the latter things to be noted in that chapter. Ahithophel, once he appreciated that his council was not followed, that David, or rather that Absalom, chose to follow Hushai's council. He, the text tells us, put his things in order and took his own life. He committed suicide on that occasion. So distraught was he that his counsel was not pursued and that his counsel was not followed. As the chapter closes, three good individuals sent tremendously needed aid to David and those troops that were with him. For while they were on the run, they were, of course, weary they were tired, they were hungry, they were in need of some of the most basic necessities that any troop would need. They needed beds, they needed food, they needed 
liquid, water, if you will, to drink. That, in fact, was provided by these three named Makir, Barzillai, and Shobai. And with that, the curtain falls on chapter 17, with there still being a tremendous hope that David would be victorious, for after being sustained by this group and refreshed by them, we're ready to start the 18th chapter, which will tell us, in fact, how all of this will reach its conclusion. Turning our attention to the 18th chapter, we're reminded on this occasion how that very interestingly and beautifully David saw the need to divide his troops into three segments or three battalions. One of them was led by Joab, his very famed and famous commander-in-chief. One was led by Joab's brother Abishai. One was led by Itai, the Gittite, who, as we discussed last week, though recently come to David, was incredibly loyal to him. As these three began to lead then this charge against the troops of Israel coming to them, David had one final word of wisdom, and in fact a commandment, deal wisely with the young man Absalom. Though Absalom was the enemy, David, because Absalom was his son, was still concerned. He was still interested in his well-being and in his welfare, and thus gave that charge to these three battalion leaders to deal wisely with him. At that point, the battle ensues. David's forces overwhelmingly are victorious. Over 20,000 are slain. The mighty degree of that victory was that this conspiracy by Absalom appears to be in its final moments. In verse number 9, the scene in fact shifts dramatically to bring this to an end. The very one, Absalom, who, though David's third oldest son was the leader of this conspiracy, was such that... As he rode on his mule, the mule went under the thick boughs of a terebinth or oak tree. Absalom's head got caught in that tree, and there he was suspended as the mule rode onward between heaven and earth, if you will. A young man saw this man Absalom stranded in that tree and went and told Joab. Joab came rather hastily, it would seem, and with three spears or darts thrust through the very heart of Absalom, and ten of his very men, ten of Joab's men, took his life. Absalom was put to death. As that brought to a close, as what was read earlier, the nature of this conspiracy, we now can well imagine with their leader gone, all of those that were his followers quickly were brought back into the array of David's forces. And in fact, now somehow word must be gotten to David. Here we find the conspiracy is over. David can return to Jerusalem in safety and again recapture or regain the throne. Ahimaaz, the very son of one of the priests, desired first to run as a messenger and bring the good news to David that the conspiracy is over. Joab, however, did not wish for Ahimaaz to take that job upon himself. Rather, he first commanded Cushai, a young gentleman in that region, to do the same. Cushai began to run then and bring news to David. Ahimaaz, though, would not give up. He proceeded to plead and to beg and to also be able to run, and, in fact, Joab gave him permission to do so. Though Cushai left first, he did not arrive first. Ahimaaz came first because he could run faster, and when he arrived, he began to speak with David. David's first question is the young man Absalom safe? Still concerned about his son. 
At that point, Ahimaaz did not answer, for he said, Though the tumult had begun, I do not know the outcome. At that point, Cushai had now arrived, and David asked Ahimaaz to stand aside, and he asked Cushai the same question, Is the young man Absalom safe? Cushai knew the answer and very frankly told the same. The conspiracy is over. Absalom is dead. With Absalom being slain, with his life being taken, David found himself in great lament. He was so sorrowful for the loss of his third oldest son. And when that news was shared with him, the chapter closes with this very touching lamentation in verse number 33. O Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom. As David was so tearful and so concerned and so distraught about the death of his son, the chapter 18 closes. We can only wait then until the next chapter next week and find out what next shall become. But might we even at this point begin to share some lessons that might be beneficial, useful for you and me as we reflect on these two chapters tonight. The end of Absalom's conspiracy. This threat to David and his throne is now completely vanquished and done away. David in safety is able to continue as king. What might be some lessons that from this could be helpful to us, to you and me in our efforts to be pleasing and acceptable unto God? The first lesson might well be taken from Ahithophel himself. We noted near the outset of this lesson tonight, Ahithophel ultimately took his own life. May we, in fact, pause to state what may well already be the obvious. Life is bound to bring to any individual difficulties, things that are harsh, matters that are not pleasant by any stretch of the imagination, issues that, in fact, may test and try you to the very core and fiber of your being. But might we note this also. Just the opposite of Ahithophel, we must learn to deal with these things productively. We must not allow them to overcome and overwhelm us and bring us to the point of pondering suicide or anything close to it. We must deal with these matters in life and to do so with a degree of courage and confidence and persistence if needed to overcome them in a way that has all the productivity and accomplishment with it. Are we not told more than once in the scriptures about ideas like that? In Matthew the 10th chapter, as our Savior gave the words of wisdom concerning the limited commission to those that were His apostles, He very well forewarned them, there will be houses and there will be cities that will not accept your message. Were they thus to give up at that point and to not continue the mission of work? Were they to in fact no longer preach the good tidings and the message of salvation? In fact, verse 14 says that when that house or that city will not receive your message, you shake the dust off your feet and head elsewhere. Note the productivity and power that was to characterize their way. Should it be any less of us? Did we not see the Apostle Paul put that into practice in Acts 13.51? When they came to the very place on that first missionary journey known as Antioch of Pisidia, the Jews in that city were so disturbed and distraught against them that even they, in fact, expelled Paul and Barnabas from the city. Did Paul and Barnabas quit? Did they give up? Verse 51 reminds us they shook the dust from their feet, and at that point they headed to Iconium. There was other individuals needing to hear the good news of the gospel, needing to hear about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2. 
May you and I then not see that you and I, just as Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 3 verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. May you and I press onward, upward, and outward, recognizing that if we choose to stay inward, downward, and backward, we shall not be able to do the Lord's work. That thought encourages then lesson number one. Take those things in life that may well be lemons and make lemonade out of it. To do that which is productive and right and to allow that to encourage us to do onward what is good and noble. How often have we seen that exemplified in Jesus, exemplified in the apostles, exemplified in those first century Christians? In Acts 8 verse 4, on that occasion, though the persecution was extreme, though it was so great that in fact there were Jews in the area of Jerusalem who were willing to even take lives, it says, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. You and I are assured of God. There is no temptation above what you and I can bear, 1 Corinthians 13, 10, 10 13. And as such, we have all the hope of an eternity in light of our efforts of faithfulness. Be thou faithful until death, and I will give thee the crown of life. We read Revelation 2, verse 10. Our second lesson, another one that will also be of great benefit to us. Think about what it was that David sought. David sought good news. When Ahimaaz and Cushai came, he wanted to hear good news about the warfare and especially about Absalom. How often do you and I like to hear good news? We often turn on the 5.30 or 6 o'clock news and we're inundated with 25 minutes of bad news. Maybe they'll slip in a bit of good news now and then. Doesn't that bring a smile, hopefully, to our face? Doesn't it brighten our horizon by considering that there is good news, at least occasionally, to hear? I think we all enjoy good news. When our parents or our friends share a bit of good news, we like to celebrate and even rejoice with a degree of jubilation. David wanted to hear good news. He heard, however, about the death of his son. But may we ponder that may you and I bring good news. What does the word gospel mean? That word in the New Testament as we so often encounter it, as we did this morning in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of what, Paul? The gospel of Christ. Why? For it's the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That word gospel literally means glad tidings or good news. Anytime you and I share the gospel, we are bringers of good news. Those that bear glad tidings, those that have that only message that can save the sin-sick soul of man, gospel, good news. How often the Old Testament even encouraged us to be those that are bringers of good news. In Proverbs, the 12th chapter, verse 25, Though it's true that heaviness can make the heart stoop, the verse closes by saying, Good news maketh the heart glad. You and I know that we are encouraged and strengthened and smiles come to our face when someone brings us good news. What about three chapters later in Proverbs 15.30? A very interesting and somewhat graphic description. When though it's true that the light of the eyes maketh glad the heart. The verse closes by noting for us, 
that that good tidings or that glad tidings, good news, if you will, will make the bones fat. That's a statement, of course, that takes us back to the days of long past when it was typically viewed since food, food was scarce, those that were too skinny were in great need. Those that seemingly were too poor physically were in need of food, but those that had plenty on the table, rich, if you will, were somewhat fat, somewhat well-to-do, if you will, physically speaking. May we understand that in a figurative way, good news will make our bones fat. It'll help us have a happy countenance, a smile on our face, and by that means we shall be a good thing to those about us, sharing good news and being those of a glad countenance. As we consider that lesson, how often were Paul and others that were his friends able to bring good news? As he traveled around the Roman Empire on three missionary journeys and a voyage to Rome, he was unceasing in his efforts to bring good news. Did he not even say in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Verses 21 and 22 of that noble chapter. In his efforts thus to win souls to Christ, he was never willing to compromise the good news that was his and that he wished to share to those everywhere he could find them. Those two lessons perhaps bring us to a third one. Yet another lesson challenges our way when we consider yet one more time the despicable nature of sin. We've been reminded more than once about that already in this book. Murders seemingly have abounded. The difficulty of defilement of Tamar in chapter 13. All the while, we've been reminded, perhaps again and again, of Jeremiah 3.25, We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers from our youth unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Though men will often, as servants of Satan, strive to make sin look tempting, and strive to make it look glorious and honorable, and make it look appealing and noble. Never has it been so, and never shall it be so, really. On this occasion, what did we see in terms of what Absalom did? Did you notice, as we made the note in passing a moment ago, when Ahithophel made the counsel, we'll kill your father, Absalom was happy. He was so desirous of the throne that he was even wishing to see his father dead. And when Hushai made that statement and that counsel, we'll in fact not only kill David, but all those that are with him. Notice that counsel made Absalom happy. He chose to follow it. It pleased him. Can you imagine desiring to see the death of your father, though he was healthy? Here was Absalom, a man who seemed to bear little resemblance to his father in that regard. He was never called a man after God's own heart. Maybe in this episode of the conspiracy we can see why. As we consider the despicable nature of sin, doesn't it remind us of Isaiah 1 verse 18 and the colorful way that sin is described? Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. And though they be black, if you will, they shall be white. On the one hand, you have what's black. And on the other hand, what's white. You and I may frequently be told we live in a world that's gray. There are no blacks and whites. Friend, those that tell us that are lying. 
There are some things God calls sinful, and no matter what the circumstances, it's not to be done. It's not to be encouraged, and it's not to be that which is brought forth toward others. On the other hand, there is always that which is right. It doesn't matter what others say about it. It doesn't matter what question others may bring toward it. It is right because God said so. Those who try to tell us that every situation is merely a gray area, choose what's best in your own consideration. That's not true. Our Savior died at Calvary, and He did so because there's truth. When Pilate asked, what is truth? The Savior said, I came to die for it. John 18, 36 and 37. There is an objective, absolute truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, our Lord exclaimed in John 8, 32. Might we notice, in terms of the despicable character of sin, one final observation. In Matthew 27, 1, with our Savior on an occasion of hanging on the cross, He said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, Eloch Sabachthani. That Aramaic expression translated when our Savior exclaimed that God had forsaken him. He bore on his shoulders my sins and yours, and in so doing carried them to a place just outside the city, where indeed that fountain for cleansing was open. Zechariah 13 verse 1. It is an overwhelming thought that should never leave our mind the magnitude and enormity of what sin involves. But maybe there's another lesson. As we look at yet the fourth one, consider how ugly Absalom's life in fact was. So many opportunities were laid literally upon his doorstep, and he forsook them. Here he was, the third oldest son of the king. No doubt all that he desired he could have had. Richness, possessions, nobility, the character of a father who, in fact, God had said was a man after my own heart, the man who was the sweet psalmist of Israel, 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 and 2. What else could he have wished for? And yet, how miserable his life was. A man who wished for the death of his own father, tried to usurp the throne, took the death of his own half-brother. All that being said, didn't he waste the opportunities vouchsafed to him? It is something that all of us should seriously consider. Not only those of us that are older, but those of us that are younger. Life has many opportunities that will come your way and mine. We should be ashamed when we think about wasting them. When we think about taking less advantage of them than what we could. For indeed, is it not still the case that those opportunities in life will one day be such that we shall stand before God and give an accounting for the means by which we have been stewards of those opportunities. Is it not true that if a man is to be faithful, he must be a good steward? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Doesn't that remind us of that parable in Matthew 25? Perhaps your mind already has gone to that point. An instance where there was a man who, before leaving on a journey for a far country, he gave various talents to his servants. To one man, five talents. To another, two talents. To another, but one talent. They all had been blessed to receive at least one talent. When the man returned and made a reckoning of those servants, the man with five, by virtue of trading of that money, was able to present five additional ones, and he was richly complimented. 
the man that had been given two talents also made good advantage of those opportunities and traded to gain two more. Both were highly commended. And in fact, in verses 21 and 23, they were told, Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. There was also, though, the one-talent man, for whom also reckoning was made. That lesson for us might quickly be, we all shall give reckoning of those opportunities that we had. The one-talent man, it seems, felt good about the fact that I've had it in a napkin and I'm returning what you gave me. The master was not pleased. He said, you knew I was an austere man, reaping where I haven't sowed, garnering where I had never strawed. You knew that I wished for more and you should have used it and produced exaction with it by trading. Because of your lack of stewardship and your degree of unfaithfulness, take from him the one that's his, give it to the man that now has ten, cast this unprofitable servant into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verses 29 and 30. Isn't that a frightful thing on one hand? To consider the responsibility that's ours to be good stewards of what we have been given, including the opportunities. When we think about the opportunities then that are ours, doesn't it also remind us of how another young lad wasted the ones that were his? In the 15th chapter of Luke, our Lord told another parable, this time the prodigal son. And that word prodigal literally means wasteful. Here was a young lad who asked dad, give me my portion of the inheritance. Daddy did what he requested. And lo and behold, when he received it, off he went into a far country and the text says he wasted it in riotous living. Many friends abounded, don't you see, when he had many things to share physically with them. But when all the money was spent, the friends were gone. He was left to fend for himself, practically ready to feed the swine in a pig pen. All the while, the text does, however, say he came to himself. He came to his better senses and recognized even the servants in my father's house fare better than this. And he pulled himself together and proceeded to march homeward, ready to say, Dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but make me merely a servant. Dad was so happy to see him. Kill the fatted calf, put the ring on his finger and a robe on his back. My son that was dead is alive again. Dad was so overjoyed with happiness. Doesn't that tell us that even God, as our Heavenly Father, when we have been unfaithful and when we have done less than what we could with what opportunities were ours, when we too come to our senses and are ready to leave the pig pen of life, God will happily welcome us home. He can again reinstate us to a position of faithfulness by virtue of the blood of His Son and how joyful and how wonderful for us such an occasion is. That lesson perhaps leads us to yet another one. Our sixth lesson of the evening. Did we not yet see, though Absalom had seemingly been so mean to David, wishing for him to be dead, striving to usurp the throne, chasing him, in fact, by virtue of trickery and conspiracy, David, it seems, never ceased to love his son. Deal safely, deal carefully, he warned Joab, Itai, and Abishai. And even when the runners came, tell me about Absalom. Is the young man safe? Maybe that reminds us of the undying love of a parent. A child can bring disappointment. To that there's no doubt. A child can choose to act in a way that's beneath their privileges. 
A child can choose to act in a way that's not like the way they were brought up. That'll bring many a sleepless night and a tear to the eye of a loving parent. But the parent never ceases to love that child and want them to come to their senses and to come back home. Just like that father we noted a moment ago. Notice that even while the son was yet a fair distance away, dad saw him coming. How often had that father stared down the road hoping to see the prodigal son coming home? No doubt many, many times he had desired to see yet one more time his walking down that primrose path to the house. You see, as youngsters, we may make mistakes. And certainly we almost always do. Dad and Mom will still love you. They want what's best for you. And when you do, come to them and share with them what you've experienced and ask for their advice. They want what's best for you. In their love, they will strive to do what they can to help you. That may well be a stern talking about the mistakes you made. Don't turn aside from them if that be true. Listen to their wisdom. Listen to their experience. Listen to what the crucible of experience has taught them and learn from it. How often as parents we might be called on to share things like that. And if we are wise, we will listen to that good wisdom and benefit greatly therefrom. For do we not read in Ephesians 6 verse 4 about the impressive love of a father as well as a mother? In fact, in the language of that text, beginning in verse 1, children are told to obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. But arriving at that discussion for fathers, fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That requirement for parenthood is ever so greatly needed in our land and in our world. We can't just allow our children to do what they want, for they won't make the right choices. They are not wise enough, and they have not gained enough maturity to do so. We must strive to lead, to guide, to teach, to instruct, to admonish, to exhort, all in the desire to lead them in that nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. Jesus didn't say that'd be an easy task, but as a noble parent, it's one that's needed, isn't it? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. To quote Proverbs 22, verse 6. That lesson leads us perhaps to see one more. Are we not taught yet again, even in this Old Testament text, that God is with those that are His? David was the victim of conspiracy, chased from the throne and greatly mistreated by his son and by others such as Ahithophel. But through it all, David placed his hope and recognition in God. Might we revisit just briefly the third psalm? Though that book has 150 chapters, the third one, it would appear, was written by David when he was fleeing from Absalom. And if so, that would place it directly at the very time in Second Samuel we've been studying. What was it David read? Or what was it that David wrote? He said, I laid me down and slept, for the Lord was with me. Even while on the run from Jerusalem, David knew the powerful presence of God at his side, sustaining him and preserving him. Do you and I feel daily the sustenance and the preserving maintenance of God? He doesn't wish to leave us on our own to make our own way, languishing in a sea of sin and sorrow. He desires to be there as an ever-present bulwark of strength, a very citadel of power at our side. How often does the psalmist and the writer of Proverbs describe God in that very way? 
In fact, to borrow the words of our Savior in Hebrews 13, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. No doubt that's been a comfort to many throughout the centuries. May it ever be so for us. Two latter texts of promise may well be noted at this point. In the 18th verse of Romans 8, a text we mentioned in passing this morning, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17, For I reckon that the light afflictions are but for a moment, but rather work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Do we keep our eyes focused on the prize of eternity, appreciating then that no matter what the difficulties and problems that life may pose us, God at our side, with Christ Jesus His Son, is ready to be there as an ever-present help in time of need. Is it any wonder then that David on another occasion could say in Psalm 46 verse 1 that God is an ever-present help in time of need? May he be so then for you and me as those that are his faithful children. Those lessons bring us to the conclusion of our study tonight in this 17th and 18th chapters. May it be that we can summarize some of these things in the following way. Our study has been interesting in as much as we've now seen the end of Absalom's conspiracy. David's return to the throne will not be entirely smooth, however, for in chapters 19 and 20 that we shall arrive at next Lord's Day evening, or rather I guess that'll be two weeks from today, given the singing next Sunday, but on our next lesson we shall learn that another, another difficulty will cloud the path of David. We shall again be reminded of how strong we can be in accomplishing those things that may cloud our path. Tonight, are you a Christian? Are you such that God does stand promisedly at your side just as He has promised to do? You must come to Him first. For after all, He, by virtue of His grace, has extended that to all men, as we see in the greatness of Titus 2 verse 11. Have you received that grace? Have you faithfully obeyed the opportunity made available to you? If you have, you know the glory of what that meant and what your life has become with Christ as the power of it. If you, though, have never become a Christian, why do you delay, dear brother? Why do you wait? Sometimes we sing that song, Why do you tarry? There'll, there shall never be a better time than tonight. If we could be of assistance to you in the accomplishment of taking your confession and aiding you in baptism, we'd be honored to help. If that's the need of your life, a hymn of encouragement has been chosen, we'll stand in a moment and sing, and that'll be an opportune time for you to let that wish be made known. If you have become a Christian, but you haven't been faithful toward that end, you have perhaps, like Absalom, done other things that have not been pleasing to God, not been pleasing to your church family, not been noble and honorable in the sight of the Son of God. Make things right tonight. He wants to forgive. You need to repent and ask Him to do so. We could do that in prayer. If either of those things would be the need of your life tonight, would you not let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?